thousands of years ago, if you wanted to conquer the world, or at least your part of the world, you had a serious problem. How are you going to feed the soldiers? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about money. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. This is the year. It's time for you to write your book. Time for you to finally sit down and write your book. Not just write it, but publish it. Writing in Community is back. You can find out the details at akimbo.com go. But what you'll do in six months is not just write a book, but publish it. Kristen Hatcher, creator of this community, has something to say. That's right. This is the year you write your book. And here's the thing. The words are yours alone to write, but you don't have to do it by yourself. Come find the others and get your words into the world. Join us in writing in community. We can't wait to see you there. Food is real. Housing is real. But money is a story. And if you're a would-be emperor, you've got a challenge. Because for every 20 or 30 soldiers you want to send on a mission, you would need to send at least that many people for supplies, provisions, food, and the rest. But there was a solution. The solution is to print some money, to coin some money, and to give that money to your soldiers. And then your soldiers can show up in a town or a village and buy what they need. The question then is, Why would a local merchant take the money? What does it even mean to get this little coin? Well, the second half of the equation is this. When your soldiers are going through territory that you control, what they can point out is that locals will need those coins to pay their taxes. And suddenly you've invented a currency. You've invented a story that goes with the coin. And the story goes like this. Here are customers, customers who have coins. If you can create food or lodging for these customers, you will get some of the coins. You can use some of the coins to pay your taxes, and the rest of the coins, they can be used to purchase things from others. And suddenly, quite suddenly, the story of money solidifies because people come to believe that this coin is worth extending effort to get more of. Some people end up building mini empires, collecting lots and lots of coins, gaining the status that they seek, and according to market theory, solving problems as they do. Because the best way to get coins is to identify what people want and offer it to them in exchange for more coins. Capitalism creates a market sensing mechanism. It helps solve problems. So then we can advance to the present day. And in the present day, there are plenty of challenges that go far beyond feeding the soldiers. But we can look at them through the lens of, what is the government's job when it comes to creating an economy, when it comes to supporting the well-being of its people, because we live under an economy that's driven by capitalism? Well, one theory is the government should do as little as possible that the economy will take care of itself, that capitalism doesn't need any help, thank you very much, that every time the government does anything, the theory goes, it is hurting the economy. 
particularly when the government spends money, runs a deficit, or increases taxes. Because taxes, the theory goes, hurt everything. Well, maybe we could look at it this way. Maybe the government is us. And maybe our job when we work together is to create a situation where people are healthy, where they are smart, and where they are confident. Healthy, because leaving the morality aside, healthy workers are significantly more productive. Smart, because if we train people from an early age to be skilled, insightful, optimistic, cooperative, and ready to do things that work, we're going to end up with a more productive workforce. A more productive workforce creates more value, and that value benefits everybody in the system. And the third one, confident, because money is a story. And if people believe that there's going to be more and more coins in the world, more and more money that gets printed for no good reason, they don't believe that collecting money today is worth a lot of effort because that money is going to be worth less tomorrow. For example, a government, if it wanted to, could say, we're going to make every single person in our constituency a millionaire. Print up enough money to give everybody a million dollars. Wouldn't that be a good thing? Well, if we did that, what would happen to the rent on a two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan? It would go from $4,000 to $400,000 a month. Why? Because there's more money chasing few rental opportunities. When that gets out of balance, the value of that money, when it comes to what can you buy with it, ends up plummeting. And if we are not confident that it will stay at a given place, we start to wonder. And if we start to wonder, it goes down in value. This is why inflation has historically been a huge challenge. Because in Venezuela or in Germany after World War I, if hyperinflation kicks in, it's really hard to change the story. If people stop saving because their savings are going to go down in value, if people stop investing because the things they're trying to build don't end up paying off, it leads to a cycle that goes in the wrong direction. This leads to our topic for today, which is modern monetary theory. Here's what happened over the last 50 years. Some people in politics discovered two things. One, democratically elected governance often has a problem with discipline. That given the temptation of giving every voter a million dollars just before the election, many politicians will say, sure, and then you end up with hyperinflation. And the second thing that some politicians saw is that if governments start printing money and giving it out, they might give it out to people those politicians don't want to get money because they are telling themselves a story about lack of effort or sloth, a story about worth and who's entitled. And so, combining these two things, they invented a new story, and it is the story of the balanced budget, equating a government with a household, saying your household cannot keep borrowing money and borrowing money and borrowing money and hope to get out on the other side. 
that there needs to be discipline. You need to balance the books. And so this was applied to how governments ought to be run. And one byproduct of this is it gave the wealthiest people confidence. Confidence that things that were unexpected, lots of new money printed, lots of new deficits created, this confidence led them to engage in a marketplace where inflation was predictable. Now we're leaving aside the very complicated conversations that happen when there's more than one country that can print money. What happens if country A prints a lot of money? What does that do to their goods and services when they try to export or import from country B? Let's leave that out of the discussion for just a minute. And so you have a balanced budget perspective. And what it says is that our job as the government is to do as little as possible and to pay for it as we go with the taxes that we collect. There are some challenges here because as we discussed a couple minutes ago, it could be that the purpose of government when it comes to economic well-being is to create a population that is healthy and smart and also confident. But when a pandemic hits or when healthcare is unequally available or when schooling starts to become too expensive for many people, or when we underinvest in how we educate people, or when the technology changes and education is unevenly available to people, we have shortchanged all of us by creating a less productive workforce. So what modern monetary theory argues is that printing money to pay for things like healthcare and education is actually fine because it doesn't cause inflation because you haven't handed a million dollars to every person. What you've done is taken people who are underemployed and made it so that they're acting productively, not by pumping too much money into the system, but by saying every doctor ought to be fully employed, taking care of every patient. By saying Every student who can learn something at scale online should be given the ability to do that. That as we create these cycles of smart and healthy, what we end up with is a population, a workforce that's more confident. And that will create a cycle that will lead to more productivity. And productivity creates value and growth and wealth. So what are the criticisms? Well, one of the criticisms is that it will lead to uncharted territory, that we don't know what to do with multi-trillion dollar debt. A bigger criticism is that governments have no discipline and that once they start printing money, they won't be able to stop printing money. And a third criticism is that as inflation rises, and it will a little, solving it with taxation will quite quickly undo 50 years of reducing taxes as a percentage on the richest part of the population. And so the people who are looking for the government to leave the wealthy alone don't like the idea of modern monetary theory because its output will be to lower the gap between the rich and the poor. Its output will be to create a more productive economy for many, many millions more people. But at the same time, change the rules of the game for people of tens or hundreds of millions of dollars or more by having that population of people pay more in taxes. Not enough to pay for everything that the government is spending, 
but enough to take the fizz off the inflationary impact. So my take is that modern monetary theory makes an enormous amount of sense. I'm not seeing the non-political objections to it. Now, a minute ago I said, what happens when we talk about trading with other countries? Well, here's what we know. They're going to have a hard time using MMT in Europe because it's harder for them to print their own currency because each country doesn't control it. And China, China has its own host of problems, and they are trying very hard to make their country more productive as well. It seems to me as we look for the next chapter in the development of humanity, it's going to be about how we deal with carbon, how we shift from an oil-based economy, how we educate people so that they can approach new problems and find interesting solutions, and how we spread healthcare, which includes clean water, to all the people who deserve it. When we seek to do all of those things, it's pretty clear the market alone hasn't solved those problems. Yes, we have raised the standard of living for just about every person on the planet. But if you're one of the people who makes 4 or $5 a day, I think it's appropriate to say, not fast enough. So, your mileage may vary, but I think it's really important that we all understand the impact and implications of modern monetary theory. Because whether we like it or not, it's going to rewire how we recover from this pandemic and how we go forward. Because every country around the world is going to print money. And we're going to have to figure out how does that impact an economy with the highest unemployment rate in 90 years? And how do we build an economy that creates a future that we're proud to have created? Thanks for listening. Stay well. Be healthy. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with three questions from earlier episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. Hey, Seth, it's Maria. Hey, Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth, this is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Loyal listeners know that I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Three questions this week. They're all sort of related. Here we go. Greetings from Malaysia. My name is Nizar. I have a question on analysis paralysis. So I run my own business. It's a new business, but I'm seeing that there are many, many problems to solve, not only for my customers, but 
for my employees and basically uh, problems within my business to improve everything overall. But because there's just so many things to solve, sometimes I just get stuck and I don't work on anything. How would you deal with analysis paralysis? Thanks for all your work. Thanks for this question. And you've already done the hard part, which is you've realized that there's a challenge. And the challenge is not that the world can be solved. The world is not a problem that can be solved. What is true is that there are elements of the world, tiny, tiny elements of the world that you can make better. And perfect is the enemy of good, and good is the direction that we need to head. That the opportunity is to find the smallest breakthrough that you can, the smallest viable breakthrough that is worth your effort, and simply do that, merely do that. Not just do that, because just minimizes it. Simply do it without commentary, and then pile on and pile on and pile on. Because there is never, ever, not once, a complete solution from the beginning. That's not how technology evolves. It's not how interventions evolve. Instead, we find something, we pull the thread, we do our best, and then we learn from that. It's an algorithm. We evolve it going forward. So when you're feeling overwhelmed by how defective all of the elements of your solution are, agree with it. It's true. They are defective. But at least you're going to make something better. And then you get to do it again. Hi, Seth. This is Zach Zhang from Shenzhen, China. I've been enrolled in the creatives and freelance workshop last year, and they really inspired me to really start doing the work, finding the audience, and building up this personal brand. My question is, as you move on into this freelance content creation path, especially you are the creator and the center of every video, blog post, podcast, and workshop that you put out, how do you balance and decide which kind of work should be directly handled by yourself, not by your assistant or outsourcing. Because in the past few weeks, I feel pretty much overwhelmed by the amount of work I have to do to keep this side hustle running. Uh, and by the way, I still have a full-time job. It really pushes me to doubt the initial idea of why I'm giving myself all this work instead of just chilling and enjoying life during weekends. I think there should be a system to be built in the long run. And right now, I just don't know where to start. Thank you for everything you share online. I really appreciate it. Thank you for this, Zach. There are two parts to your question. One part you didn't ask and one part you did. The part you didn't ask is this. Is it a useful path to go down the list to become the influencer, the social media star, the personal brand? Because everyone who is a person has a brand in the sense that your reputation precedes you, that just hearing your name implies a promise. But personal brand with a capital P and a capital B as something you do for a living, that doesn't feel like a strategy to me. A strategy to me is, who do you seek to serve? Are they part of a tribe? What do they believe? What's their worldview? And what are their challenges? Can you show up for that kind of person, the smallest viable audience, and bring them something that they need. Maybe it's something that has your name, personal name on it. Maybe it's something that has an organization's name on it. Maybe it's simply something fairly anonymous, like a piece of software. But 
we don't begin, or at least I don't begin with, how do I get a microphone? Because I feel like that's a little bit of a trap. Because social media rewards people who seek a spotlight in the short run. But in the long run, it benefits social media. It doesn't benefit you. And the second half of your question about what do you outsource, it seems to me we need to outsource anything that someone else can do better than we can if we can afford it. And we need to make sure that we don't outsource anything where our doing it with our own two hands, with our own voice matters. So in my case, I made the decision that if these are words, I wrote them. If it's a video, I made it. But there are other people, plenty of other people, who don't have to do that. And if you look at the history of stand-up pre, I don't know, Seinfeld or just before then, comedians didn't write their own jokes. Henny Youngman didn't write his own jokes. Milton Berle didn't write his own jokes. Phil Stiller didn't write her own jokes. Not all of them. They had other people writing them. You know, she's always bragging how you can eat off her kitchen floor. You can eat off my kitchen floor. Mustard, ketchup, baked beans. Because <laughs> they were in the joke delivery business not in the joke writing business. But then the culture shifted and it became a singer-songwriter sort of situation. So there isn't a cut and dry answer, but I think the overall strategy needs to shift to whose problem are you solving anyway? Hey, Seth, this is Rich in Los Angeles. Thank you for all your work. You've helped me so much since I first discovered your work about a year ago. You've influenced and taught me more than literally I think anyone uh, ever has. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My question is about dancing with the fear. I love the metaphor of dancing with it. I've shared this with other people and it's blown their minds. And sometimes I do believe I've actually danced with fear, but I don't know how I did it. And I don't know how to replicate it. Uh, in an interview, once you said that you like to sit down with the resistance and talk with it and turn it into a compass. And I'm doing that. I'm trying to do things. I'm doing things that I'm afraid of, but it's still so scary sometimes that it's debilitating. And I don't know how how to dance. And while I get that dancing with the fear may look signatorily different for every person, is there any way you could provide some insight on, on how best to do this, to be more consistent with it, to make it happen? Thank you so much again for everything you do. Have a great day. Thank you, Rich, for this generous question and for showing up every day as you do. Dancing with fear. There are two kinds of dancing. There is the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers sort of dancing in which a choreographer and practice are involved. That's not the kind of dancing I'm talking about. There's a different kind of dancing, a dancing you might find in the rain in a village with strangers. This is the dancing of giving and taking. This is the dancing in the moment that has nothing to do with perfect and nothing to do with choreography. It's about seeing and responding, seeing and reacting, seeing and moving it forward. And so if we watch two great athletes competing against each other in a one-on-one, -on -one, they're doing a form of dance. One of them is trying to stop the other one, but they are still dancing with each other. And that is what I'm talking about. To dance with fear does not mean you can destroy it because you can't. Does not mean you can tame it because you can't. It definitely doesn't mean you can choreograph it because you can't. What it means is, oh, it's going left, I can go right, or I can pirouette with it. There's something to be done here that isn't a referendum on my value as a human. It's not a crisis, it's simply an opportunity. Other people might see that fear and barrel over it, and they would probably pay a price for doing that. Some people 
might see the fear and simply hide. But if we want to, we can train ourselves to when we see the fear, when we feel the fear, realize that it is in this moment that we get to do the things that we are proud of. And yes, we can dance with it because we can watch it from afar, being present, realizing that the fear is up to something and so are we. And together we will create a new thing, the fear and me. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for the work you do. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know? And none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.